Welcome to the Chamber of Musical Curiosities, a podcast exploring the world in and around Music Aviva Australia. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Paul Kilday, the Artistic Director of Music Aviva Australia, and I'm here today with Nicolas Fleury, the French French horn player. I have to say it twice, Nicolas, and you'll explain why in a moment, but welcome. Thank you for having me today on the podcast and looking forward to discuss the exciting June coming ahead. Well, that's where we'll land, but I thought we'd do it in an interesting way, which is, uh, of course, in June, you're going to tour Australia for Music Aviva in some fabulous repertory, and that makes us all very excited. But the way I thought we'd get to know you a little bit more, and indeed the program that you're going to be presenting, and some of the colleagues with whom you'll be working, is just to talk about some of the great horn pieces in the repertory. I'm going to throw some names at you and I just want you to riff on them um, about how you first encountered them, when you've played them, what they've meant to you and what they've done in terms of your progress in your career to to this date where now you're principal horn in the, the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra here in Australia, but you know with a flourishing career all throughout the world with um, an amazing, I think, very sensitive profile as a, as a beautiful chamber musician. So I've picked just a list of some of the pieces that I love, and I just would like to know what they mean to you. And I suppose the, the starting point for that would be, of course, the Mozart Horn Concerti. And so why don't you talk a little bit about what they have meant to you? Well, of course, when we hear that, all horn players would think straight away about audition piece. It's the piece, either the second or the third or the fourth, that you always play when you have to do an audition to get into something. So straight away, my first thought when you say that is, oh, stress, because we've got to play more perfectly to go through the first round. <laughs> but actually, my, my first teacher was absolutely wonderful at teaching us this repertoire quite early on to try to not make it such a big deal and just have fun playing this very fun, quite incredible music, full of jokes, full of humor. So he was very good at just making it what it is, which is just amazing Mozart music. I suppose you should talk about what the horn was in, in Mozart's day and the use of crooks and therefore the key of some of those concertos. Um, because uh, for, for non-horn players and non-musicians, this stuff is endlessly interesting. Yes, of course. So back in the day, there was no valves whatsoever. So every kind of sound and note we would make, we would, of course, use the lips and the natural harmonics and the right hand in the belt to correct some of those natural harmonics, which are not effectively in tune. So it was a very challenging instrument to play, of course. And, you know, Mozart, he had this amazing friend called Joseph Lutkeb, and he wrote all this concerti for him. He was a phenomenal, uh, very natural at the horn and also a very normal human being as in like you know, he had a job he owned a cheese shop and yet he used to play the horn for fun and so Mozart in his concerti wrote all these jokes for his good friends and so it's always good to remember that as challenging as it is today to play it perfectly it was not aimed to be that way so it's always a good thing so of course it's a crook in E flat major a lot of the time because that crook allows a beautiful singing melody in the second theme usually in a very uh, uh, beautiful tone throughout the instrument because when we put the lower crook in it means effectively that the tube is much longer and when the tube is longer such as one in C then it's less beautiful clearly and if the crook is much shorter when we get closer to a trumpet sound, which is not very good for a horn concerto. So most of the time, it's the four concerti, actually three of them are written horn in E-flat, with E-flat crook in. The first one is horn in D, which is a little bit too long, in my opinion, to make a good clean noise. <laughs> 
Um, but when Richard Strauss was writing his horn concerti in the, the early 20th century, um, he had access to the full rotary valve. But I think at least one of them is still in E-flat. And is that a, a homage to Mozart? I think it's a tonality that works really well on the horn. And there's, of course, Mozart wrote like four of his uh, work, big work for horn, like the quintet and also the concerti in E-flat. And I think there was this tradition that horn in E-flat sounds pretty amazing throughout the range, actually. So a lot of the concerti, also the Strauss II concerti, are in E-flat, which is a beautiful tonality that works really well. I know it's very annoying for some of the string players. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put them to one side. So what's your relationship been with the Strauss concerti? Because to me, those are just uh, you know magnificent works as well. Yes, the, it's... To be fair, so the first CD I got, uh, I got two actually. I got wonderful horn players. One is Marie Louise Neunecker, uh, who was playing Russian music, clear and and uh, all of his works. And the next one was Radovan Vladkovich playing the horn Strauss concerto. So from a very very early age, I'm talking seven, eight years old, that CD was in my CD player, and I was listening to it constantly. Yeah, listening to Radovan Vlachkovich plays Strauss 1 and Strauss 2 when I was seven, eight years old was a, a massive plus for my uh, ambition and also uh, uh, passion about the horn. Well, talk a little bit about that ambition, if you wouldn't mind, because, of course, I remember when Marie-Louise uh, jumped on the scene in, in 2000 or, or the late 90s. I think it was, you know, and, and she seemed very young then. But, of course, you're very young and, um, and you know, you managed to squeeze quite a lot into your career so far. Yeah, so I mean, I was pretty lucky to study in a great place called London at the Royal College of Music where, you know, London, it's so much going on there, so much going on. And so a lot of possibility of work, a lot of orchestra, a lot of art in general. So I was pretty lucky to join the Aurora Orchestra very early on when I was 21. And then that was a stepping stone because that orchestra is a chamber orchestra. So then I joined the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra, then the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra in London, and then the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. So my, my career is pretty orchestra-orientated, but I always managed to be invited for festivals here and here and to carry on doing some chamber music, which is such an important part of the horn repertoire. That's why I'm delighted to be with Music of Viva in, in June. Well, let me throw you the absolute antithesis of chamber music and talk about the horn and Ein Heldenleben. That's interesting because that's a piece I haven't yet played on principal horn. Oh. I've played pretty much uh, all the Rich Strauss um, tone poem, which are amazing. But Heldenleben, I've never done it on the first horn chair yet. And it's also very interesting because we've played so many of the excerpts of that piece because it's such a challenging piece that uh, you have to learn the excerpt and perform the excerpt to get the job, pretty much. But exactly. I haven't yet had the luxury to perform it on the first chair. Uh, well, I look forward to that. It's it's funny, when you were talking about the Mozart horn concerti as um, audition pieces, I just straight away went to that opening solo in Heldenleben and thought, man, you must <laughs> have the kind of same response to that, that, you know, it's it's hard to disassociate yourself from the, the experience of when you're normally playing that piece, from just the sheer joy and craft of the music itself. Yes, of course, it's so well orchestrated. That solo at the start is with the celli. And so, you, you know, you can just have a bath of sound in the celli and just play your line along with them. So it's a much easier thing in context. In context sorry. But yeah, as I said, I, I'm yet to do that piece. And uh, I remember doing the Alpine Symphony thinking, wow, it's much easier in context. <laughs> <laughs> 
So it's going to be the same with Elden Leben when it comes around. Yeah. Well, talk then, if you wouldn't mind, a bit about the uh, Britain Serenade for tenor, horn, and strings, because that's another of those those pieces that must just loom. And even though Britain is a very, you know, English composer, even for a young French musician, that piece, learning the horn, that piece must have just been one of these, you know, mountains that you had to climb from a relatively young age. Absolutely. The Britain Serenade is, I would say, one of the most uh, inspiring work for the instrument. It's just so amazing to do it. And I had the, I had the chance to do it where it was first performed in the Wingmore Hall. And wow, it's just a phenomenal piece, incredibly challenging. But at the same time, Britain has this capacity to always make it doable. It's quite amazing. All the horn part he ever wrote, whether it's in his opera, Peter Grimes, or different things, they're always super challenging, super rewarding at the same time. So it was, a, of course, it's a big deal to play the, the prologue and the epilogue by yourself, first on stage and off stage on the natural harmonics of the instrument that are supposed to be out of tune. So usually when I do that piece, I, I do it on the natural horn because it makes it very obvious to the listener that it's supposed to be like that. And then, of course, you have some incredibly challenging moments in all the middle movements, particularly the the, the, the fast one. And that's, yes, absolutely. That's something you need to um, allow time to learn. So I, I didn't learn it quickly. I, I, I took a lot of time before I tackled that piece. Uh, I think the first time I actually took the part out and practiced it, I probably was in my late teens so 18 19 years old not before that i thought i'm not ready yet to tackle that piece although i was listening to it a lot and there's a version that, by marie louise neunicker that is phenomenal i think yes uh, with ian bostridge i think yes absolutely it makes me laugh because um, of course the the first performance of it in 1943 wartime uh wigmore hall london you know, bombing in the in the East End, etc. But one of the reviews talked about that uh, epilogue and the prologue, and just saying, you know, if only Dennis Brain could have played with better intonation. <laughs> I'm kind of missing well, the point. <laughs> that is sometimes to prove that the critics don't know it all. <laughs> that's right. Did you have a, a kind of relationship with Dennis Brain's playing at all? He always and will always be uh, the master. Is that kind of quality of of sound, of legato, of um, staccato? There's something amazing with with Dennis Brain. Is when you put his Mozart horn concerti recording, when he plays it, it seems to be a little slow and a little, uh, you know, I wouldn't say dull because his playing is never that. But you ought to think, oh, he could actually play a little bit faster and more exciting. And then actually, you put the metronome in to find out what tempo he's using. And it's actually a lot faster than you think it is. And somehow yeah. it makes it sound so classy and effortless. And so that's something I get very inspired by when someone can play the instrument such as the horn with such class and effortless. Wow, you've done it all when you can play the horn and make it sound easy. And he was one of them. Yeah. And of course, when he died tragically in a motorbike accident in the 1950s. Uh, in, in a car accident, I believe. It was Carl, wasn't it? Okay. Yeah. His great friend and admirer, Francis Poulon, wrote, of course, that elegy for horn and piano. And I just wonder where that sits. I find it a very beautiful and haunting and, and incredibly touching piece. But I just wonder where that fits, both in the French imagination, but also in the imagination of a horn player. It's a beautiful piece that takes a bit of time to enjoy, I think. The first listen is usually not as good as the, 
a second, a third or fourth or tenth, in my opinion, the hundreds. <laughs> but it's a piece I, I performed for my final recital in London. So it's a piece that somehow speaks to my emotions when I play it. So you can really do things with the music Poulenc wrote to make it incredibly exciting during the beginning when he's pretty much describing the crash. And then so lyrical and beautiful to try to get inspired from Denis brains playing and what he would have done with this piece. So yeah, it's a piece we all value a lot as horn players. And I'm a big fan of Poulenc work in general, particularly the Tabat Mater and the Gloria, which are two massive pieces of orchestra and choir. But I do love the Poulenc harmony. So yeah, that piece uh, is a piece I, I keep close to my heart for sure. Music Aviva would like to say thanks for the support and ongoing partnership of West Farmers Arts. West Farmers Arts understand the vital contribution that the arts make to the communities in which we live and work, bringing people and art together. Another work, which is sometimes a little bit of a curiosity, um, is the Schumann Concertstück for four horns and orchestra. And I, I, I want to know uh, your thoughts on the piece, And but probably it's a good way of using a piece of music uh, to talk about the original hunting associations of the instrument that you're now so expert in. Yes, well, of course, the, the history makes a horn. I'm going to come into the Schumann Concertstück in a second, but it's an instrument that always evocates hunting. It's always been like that. It will always be like that because that's the root of the instrument itself. And composer always kept that in their mind from, I can name so many, but from the the right of spring, the strong call of the horn, from the uh, Wagner, obviously Siegfried, horn call. It's always been, and it will always be that. In the Konterstück, it's particularly exciting because obviously it's written for four horn soloists and orchestra. It's like the full horn section comes at the front to perform this such exciting piece, which is incredibly hard and demanding physically, particularly for the first horn part. But there's a lot of uh, great players who make arrangements to share a little bit more evenly the difficulties throughout the four horns instead of oh. just everything in the first horn and the other three uh, just playing the tutti parts a little bit. But it's a very exciting work, which I have the, the luxury when I was young to tackle with a lot of uh, ambition. I don't know if I did too well in it, but it's uh, <laughs> it's something it's good to tackle with uh, the daring of youth, I think. Completely. I wonder if just because of the time that you've spent in London, both as a student and as a professional, whether you got to work with Ollie Nusson at all. And I think of him because, of course, Colin Matthews in his own horn concerto played with the idea that Britain had played with this idea of, you know, moving antiphonally from offstage, but also writing for um, other horns in the horn concerto, which you kind of normally composers try and avoid, you know, putting up the uh, solo instrument against uh, the tutti instruments of the same brand. And I just sort of think that Ollie was uh, such a kind of beautiful spirit and um, sadly died a few years ago. But his own horn concerto is, is an amazing piece. And I just wonder if you have tackled either Collins or Ollie's concertos. I haven't tackled their concerti, but I, have the, I had the luxury to work with them quite closely because I used to be uh, in the orchestra and also an emerging artist with a lot of Sinfonietta. Um, so I performed lots of their pieces. And actually, they talking about pushing the boundaries, those guys push the boundaries of the horn technique and limits. It's quite astonishing. And it's been a long time since we have that range for everyone. It's the same range, but somehow they push it. But they push it in a way that it's doable again. 
So it's almost in the following Britain, you know, always asking for more, always asking for more. So I know I haven't uh, yet learned this concerti properly, and maybe in the future I'll have the, the opportunity to uh, to do so with the MSO. Wouldn't that be exciting? Oh, it'd be thrilling because they're both amazingly well-crafted works. And and Ollie did have that thing of just trying to pare everything down, you know, to the, the tiniest sounds and sonorities, even though he might be at one stage writing for a large ensemble. So that'd be terrific. I'll throw another couple of works at you as we kind of slowly wind up. And um, one of them is the Beethoven horn sonata, which I, I don't think one hears a lot. Actually, it's one of those pieces that you learned fairly early on in your uh, horn uh, career. I remember learning it, I was maybe 12, and starting to be comfortable on the instrument. And I thought, oh, that uh, my teacher thought it's a challenging, uh, yet beautifully crafted piece of music, of course. So yeah, that's in the F major, the F Krug is in, which is a very nice Krug to play the, the natural horn, because of course that piece was written for natural horn, which is such a nice Krug to play on. It's my favorite Krug to play on, just F Krug. It's a very challenging piece again. It seems to be a thing about horn playing. Everything is a little challenging somehow. <laughs> so again, I, when I try to play that piece, I always try to make it as a dancey as a violin would do it or maybe even a clarinet. Yeah, perfect. Well, the last piece I want to throw at you is the main reason that we're talking today. And it's, of course, the Brahms Horn Trio, which we've paired with the the Ernst Naumann arrangement of the Mozart Horn Trio, the, the arrangement from the quintet. And the joy that I have in getting to program you, because, of course, as I said at the very beginning of the podcast, you're now the uh, principal horn in the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. So talk a little bit about Brahms, if you wouldn't mind. Talk a bit about the joy of being able to do a a full national tour in a country you probably don't know very well yet. And then also uh, that whole decision about coming and and accepting a chair, a principal chair, so far from home and so Mm -hmm. far from um, a lot of the contacts and experiences and people and, you know, collaborators and composers with whom you have worked in the first 10 years of your professional career. Yes, of course, that Brahms Horn Trio is the chamber music masterpiece for our instrument, I would say. It's just so well written. I mean, Brahms really knew how to write for that mellow sound of the horn, uh, an instrument he, he learned when he was younger. It's just a privilege to play his symphonies in the MSO and stepping up into a chamber music setup like that is just always a joy. It's a piece I've performed many times and every time differently. So that's why I'm really looking forward to team up with those uh, wonderful people, Emily and Amir. And uh, we don't know each other yet. We know of each other's playing. So there's an amazing kind of sense of, uh, as you're known, but yet we know it's going to be such an amazing collaboration, all of the three of us. And I'm sure we'll be great friends after that wonderful tour. So yeah, I'm I'm so looking forward to tackle that piece, which I haven't done in, in a little in a little while, maybe a couple of years. And of playing it is in those amazing cities of Australia. It's amazing for me because it's a, it's a great way to discover the country somehow because I know Melbourne pretty well. Yeah. I know Sydney pretty well. And um, also the funny thing is uh, all the halls in Australia are very different. And if you talk to a Queenslander, the hall in Queensland is the best. If you talk to West Australia, the hall in West Australia is the best. Uh, but they all have different characteristics, but they are actually all very beautiful. And, and international musicians or visiting musicians always go, wow, I love this for this reason. I love that for that reason. So I'm really pleased you'll do that. I'll add just before you talk a bit about that whole decision and, and the process of moving to Melbourne, I will just say something that I loved when when I first started talking to you about the Brahms and a potential tour and having admired your playing for a while. 
we had a very nice series of conversations just about colleagues and with whom you might uh, collaborate. And there was something gloriously natural and very musical, but also very generous from you and both Emily and Amir about working together and just kind of going, okay, the shorthand is clearly that we're all, you know, similar musicians. We all kind of shape and think the same. Um, so it's one of those arranged marriages about which I, I you know, <clears throat> feel very confident and hope that, as, as you say, you end up, you know, just great friends from the sheer um, frequency of performing this this big program together. So yes, what about the whole how we get to have you in Australia and how we you know how you landed here in Melbourne in this you know wonderful city and orchestra? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that working in Australia is a very different thing from working in, in London. I loved my years in London between eighteen and then thirty, but then I thought, is that sustainable? Working like that because the London orchestras work so hard. Very little rehearsal time, lots of concerts, lots of performances, lots of tours, lots of sessions, recording sessions. So yeah, when you're in your 20s, it's heaven. But then when we think, can I have a long career? Certainly on the instrument that I play, which is a very physical instrument, maybe not. So I had to reconsider whether I could see myself in 10, 15 years in that job and my thought was like i don't think i can do it i think i'm gonna burn my my lips or you know tire <laughs> my 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 muscles so i when a, an opportunity came to do a, a pre-trial in in the mso an orchestra which i have been in as a guest before i thought absolutely australia is always a place i love touring i came here three times before that and i always thought wow wouldn't it be nice to leave here? So then the opportunity came in and I stepped in the orchestra on the first rehearsal and it was a full ballet of the Firebirds with uh, uh, Yuka Pekka Sarast, which was great. And I had so much fun playing that and the orchestra seems to enjoy what I do too. So, wow. So I gave everything I had in that month of pre-trial and, and the position came to me and it kind of, I remember the phone call I got from the MSO offering me that then trial position for six months leading to the full-time job. And I was so happy, so happy, a massive smile on my face. And, and then I thought, I've got to try it out. I have to try it out. And those six months of trial were amazing. I mean, the camaraderie, the lifestyle of Australians, which is great. It's actually a lot closer to the French lifestyle. <laughs> so, uh, so all in all, it was a no-brainer when the, the job was offered to me fully that it was going to be a yes and a, a new life here. Of course, I, I miss things from London. I miss the obsession for a movie or for an artist. I miss occasionally to perform in the Royal Albert Hall for the proms. But that's something I can go back and do because the diary allows me occasionally to take a week off to go back to London to do some work. So all in all, it was the best for me. The tough situation is with family. Uh, but, you know, thank God for FaceTime and Skype and all the things. And we, we stay in touch as much as possible. So, yeah, it's a pure joy and I have not regretted it at all. I was thinking slightly about that just when you mentioned the French lifestyle and there is something kind of, you know, beautiful and uh, sybaritic about it and uh, which does compare favourably with the Australian lifestyle, this enjoyment of people, food, entertainment, which is actually really hard if you're slogging it in London trying to make a living. And I just hope that we 
can reproduce as much. I mean, I have a line that I, I just wish that Australia had been discovered by the French and and, and all the architecture had been built by <laughs> the French. Um, but uh, we have at least uh, certain aspects of the French lifestyle, which uh, I like to hold on to um, being over here. So I hope that you get to experience the same thing, that you enjoy this big brown land that we're about to send you around and that you get mm. to meet the audiences. I remember a year ago when Garrick Olsen was here from the States and he did his first concert in the Perth Concert Hall and just afterwards came off stage and just said, that's one of the most attentive and brilliant audiences, you know, that I've ever played for. And then that was the first concert and on it went, you know, one, one after another. So there's a passionate and gorgeous um, audience uh, waiting for you in each of these towns and concert halls. And I wish I can't wait to, to hear it and to see you playing together. And I'll, I'll say thank you, Nicholas Furry, for uh, beautiful thoughts and ideas and primarily for beautiful music making. Well, thank you very much. I cannot wait to discover the country, to discover those audiences, and I'm looking forward to share a glass of wine with them all after the concerts. Nicholas, thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find show notes for the episode on our website, musicaviva.com.au forward slash podcast. To learn more about our work and upcoming concerts, find us on Facebook by searching Music Aviva Australia and on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Music Aviva AU. Thanks again and see you next time.